Hello, welcome to Verse by Verse. I'm Clinton DeFrance. If you have any questions about the things that are taught on this podcast or would like to share your own perspective with me, uh, the speaker, please write me at vbvpodcast at gmail.com. If you would like to learn more about other teachings that we offer, visit our website, vbvpodcast.com. If Christianity is really God's plan to reclaim the world from the devil— and fix its brokenness, then why does it seem that Christianity is itself so broken and weak? Our brokenness and weakness may manifest in several ways. The failure of Christians and Christian leaders to live up to their own convictions, the loss of ground in society as secular and pagan forces seem to become more powerful and influential, and the general slowness of things really getting any better. Many people give up on Christianity for these very reasons, and many who remain Christians adopt a very self-centered, otherworldly, futuristic conception of what the good end of God's work is supposed to be. That can hardly be criticized because if we are in the midst of God's plan to save the world, things seem to have gotten out of hand, and if one dares to speak it, one might even wonder— if the plan has failed. This was, I suggest, the concern in the minds of the Christians who lived throughout the Lycus River Valley in Asia Minor in the first Christian century, when the Apostle Paul wrote them a letter which we now call Ephesians. Paul had spent three years leading an impressive evangelistic campaign in that part of the world, which resulted in the conversion of thousands and the establishment of many congregations. But then he left to visit some older works which were struggling and eventually to return to his own people in Jerusalem. While there, he found significant opposition from those on the outside and from other Christians who had mischaracterized his work and teaching. He was falsely accused and brought to trial, which under that system resulted in his being imprisoned for more than two years. We need to understand that under that legal system, imprisonment was not the penalty for being convicted. It was the probationary state of a man who was awaiting trial, and they did not have the right to a speedy trial as we do in our modern system. The Apostle Paul, because he was a Roman citizen, had the right to appeal to the emperor himself, and he did, and this took him to Rome, but also extended his imprisonment. Due to the nature of the accusations, Paul may not have been killed if he were found guilty, but the outcome was uncertain. The situation was volatile for several reasons, and in the meantime, this great worker for the kingdom of God was muzzled and chained, incapacitated, so it seemed, by the heathen powers of the present age. That was a troublesome situation to all Christians, I'm sure, but it would have been especially so to the Christians in Asia Minor because of the background from whence they had come to Christ. The people in that part of the world worshipped the pantheon of traditional Greco-Roman gods and goddesses like the rest of the Gentile nations which had been influenced by the conquests of Alexander the Great and later by the Roman legions. But here there was an added feature to the religious devotions of the people. 
In 29 BC, Caesar Augustus allowed the people in this region to build temples to him and begin worshiping him as a god. Thus, the citizens of Asia Minor were really the originators of the imperial cult, or Caesar worship. It's very likely that a large number of the Christians living there when Paul wrote his letter had spent their past lives throwing a pinch of incense on the altar and saying, Caesar is Lord. But under Paul's preaching, their minds had been changed. They had come to believe that Jesus Christ is Lord of all, the true king of the universe, and that under his present reign, the old order of things was passing away, and all things were becoming new. Yet now their old God had imprisoned the greatest servant and messenger of their new God. You can just imagine the challenge that would bring to their faith. Was Christianity true? If so, how could this happen? Had the powers of the present age defeated the purpose of God? Paul answers that question with a resounding no. In fact, from his prison, he reinforces his identity and authority in Christ as Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ, by the will of God, Ephesians 1.1. For him, because he is who he is, by the will of God, his present circumstances do not change the facts of the case in the slightest. Throughout the rest of the letter, Paul defends the brilliance and unimpeachable victoriousness of God's plan, but nowhere more powerfully than here in chapter 1, verses 3 through 14. Note that in this text, three times, in verses 6 and 12 and 14, Paul uses the phrase, to the praise of his glory. It seems to function like a refrain or a chorus, marking the end of verses in a lyrical poem, the kind that would be used as a hymn in worship. Now, the content of this section does not have many of the features of poetic language, at least in its literary style, so it does not seem likely that this was a hymn, Paul will quote, or perhaps even compose, poetry in other places throughout the epistle, but many scholars have supposed that Paul was at least referencing or adapting a hymn that was familiar to his audience in this section. And if the refrain marks out each verse, then we are struck by the fact that each verse focused on the work of each person in the Holy Trinity— for the redemption of the world. Verses 3 through 6 celebrate the work of the Father. Verses 6 through 13 celebrate the work of Jesus Christ the Son. And verses 13 and 14 celebrate the work of the Holy Spirit. The central message of this section is that the whole plan and purpose of God comes forth from God Himself and is focused on the central end of his glory. God's primary concern is not simply to lavish gifts on humanity and improve our situation. The extravagant and rich statements about God's love for us in Scripture should not be overstretched to convey that idea. God's chief purpose for creating all things was his glory, 
when man sinned against him and joined the devil's rebellion, it would have been reasonable and just for God to destroy humanity since we were no longer functioning to accomplish God's purpose. Instead, we were actively working against it. But in his great love, he did not cast us off. Rather, he set out to redeem us and restore us back to a condition in which we can accomplish our purpose, the praise of his glory. In what we may call the first stanza of this hymn of praise, Paul directs his attention to God the Father. Ephesians chapter 1, verses 3 through 6. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ, just as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world that we would be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us to adoption as sons through Jesus Christ to himself according to the kind intention of his will, to the praise of the glory of his grace, which he freely bestowed on us in the Beloved. Here we are introduced to the principal work of God the Father in the plan of salvation. He chose us and he predestined us. Election which is another word for choosing, and predestination, are profoundly biblical concepts. The term predestined is only found six times in my English translation of the Bible, and it refers to marking out beforehand how something is going to end. You might think of an artist or an architect who wants to create something or to build a structure. And before they begin to work, they must have in mind a sense of what the outcome will be. Depending on the person and the nature of the project, that predestination might be more or less specific and more or less detailed. But for any project to be successful, there must be some sense of what the end of it is going to look like. And that's what we're talking about when we talk about predestination. Thus, it is not a word used very often, but it certainly is a concept that is frequently discussed in Scripture. What is God working toward? What is the end goal of all the work he is doing in redemption? The concept of God making a choice as to what he was going to do and how he was going to do it and with whom he was going to work is also a major theme throughout the Scripture. Not only that God makes such choices, but that he has the power and authority to make them, which concept is called the sovereignty of God. Over the last 2,000 years since Jesus began to teach his followers, there have been a number of rival ideas for how election and predestination work. What kind of choices does God make? How does he make them? Who has he chosen? What are the implications of being among the chosen ones or of being excluded from them? For instance, there are some who argue that God chooses who he will save. Others argue that God chooses only who he will use to serve him. Some argue that God's choice is made unconditionally, meaning there is nothing whatsoever in or about the person God chooses that motivated him to choose them as opposed to someone else. 
Others argue that God's choices are conditioned on certain standards that he has set or certain things he has foreknown about the people who he chooses. Incidentally, when I use that word foreknown or its cognate foreknowledge, I'm talking about something distinct from but possibly related to predestination and election. God's foreknowledge is his ability to know what is going to happen before it happens. While there are a few Christians who deny that God has this ability, most people accept that he does, but there are questions about how that works in relation to God's choices. Does everything happen just because God decided that is how it would happen? Some Christians have felt this is so, and they conceive of God as a radical micromanager of every detail of his creation. They would utterly deny any free will that allows for something to take place which God did not for some reason desire to happen or ordain to happen and appoint that it would and bring it to pass in his mighty power. But There are other Christians who suppose that God is able to know about things which he did not want to happen, and he certainly did not cause them to happen, even if he allowed them to. He makes his choices, therefore, in light of that foreknowledge, and he uses his perfect wisdom to craft a plan that will work in spite of whatever free agencies in the universe might be working against it. If you study the history of Christianity, you will find all these different opinions and probably even more. Disagreements on these matters have led to many schisms and divisions in the body of Christ, and there are some people whose entire identity as a Christian is bound up in their opinion on this subject. I want to use principally this text in Ephesians 1 to learn what can be learned about these ideas from a purely biblical perspective. First, we note that in this text, all of the talk about predestination and election is corporate rather than individual, or we could say it is plural rather than singular. Paul says that God chose or predestined us, and when he uses the word you, it is in Greek a plural you, what we here in Oklahoma might say as Y'all. Listen to it. He blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ, just as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we would be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us to adoption as sons through Jesus Christ to himself, according to the kind intention of his grace, to the praise of the glory of his grace which he freely bestowed on us in the Beloved. There's still a few possibilities for how this could work. It could be that God has chosen a certain kind or class of people, and that all of the people in the world, whoever is like this or becomes like this, is therefore among the chosen or the elect. So you might say that God has chosen people with black hair, Anyone who has black hair is therefore among the elect. If you are able to make your hair black, you could be among the elect. Uh, But if you don't have black hair, then you will not be among the elect. That's one way that this idea of 
corporate election could work. It could be corporate in the sense of a group of people who are brought together based on common traits or characteristics. It could also be that God has chosen a group, and the group itself could be thought of as a vehicle, like a bus. And there are going to be all kinds of people on that bus, but whoever gets on board is among the elect. Whoever is on board or whoever manages to make their way on board or is invited on board or whatever the case may be is among the elect. So that's another concept of corporate election. Or it could be a combination of the two, that God has chosen a group of people like a vehicle, but only a certain kind or class of individuals are allowed to become a part of that group. So that's another possibility. There is nothing in these words of predestination, choosing, election, foreknowledge, uh, to indicate that God chooses people individually without any consideration of who they are or whether they are associated with other people like them in some meaningful way. Instead, all of the language points to one of these other concepts of a corporate election. Note as well that both the choosing and the predestining are said to be in Christ, verse 4 and verses 10 and 11. This concept of in Christ is the most important concept in the book of Ephesians. When Christ accomplished his work in God's plan, he became the founder of a new humanity, like Adam was the founder of the old humanity. And when persons are redeemed through Christ by faith in him, they are incorporated into his body, which is the church, and they become sharers and participants in his identity. Because of what he has accomplished, the Bible says that the Father has lavished honors and status and position and privileges and blessings on him and given him a glorious inheritance that essentially equates to the whole of redeemed creation. But Paul gives the remarkable announcement that because the new humanity, the saved, is in Christ, we receive all the same honors, status, position, and privilege along with him. Thus, Paul's words here in Ephesians 1 support the last of our three options for corporate election. In Christ is where you need to be. In fact, listen to how Paul says it. He chose us in him, Ephesians 1.4. One of the ideas inherent in the word Christ or Messiah is the idea of being elected or chosen by God. The Christ is the Lord's anointed, the one who God has marked out and identified as his own special one. In fact, in 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 4, Jesus himself is called the elect. So God chose him, and when we are in him, when we have been incorporated into his body and become participants in his identity, then we are chosen in him. But it is not merely a matter of where we are, but how we got there. And here is the issue of the kind or class of people God has chosen. Individuals become part of the chosen or the elect by incorporation into the body of Christ, 
and individuals are incorporated into the body of Christ by faith. We do not have faith because God chose us. We are the chosen of God because we are in Christ, and we are in Christ by faith. The Apostle does not state this so explicitly in this section of Ephesians, but perhaps the clearest statement of it in all Scripture is in Ephesians 2, 8-10. through 10. Yet it is always important, and more so in the religious climate like ours, to state that faith in the writings of Paul is not merely a thought in the head, an idea or a disposition in the head or even in the heart. It is faithfulness. It is something all-consuming, life-transforming, the relentless pursuit of the will of God in Christ, which is made possible through forgiveness of sins and the gift of the Holy Spirit, and which is inaugurated with baptism in water in Jesus' name. God the Father has chosen all who will trust in Christ and turn to Him and receive pardon and the power of the Spirit through baptism, these will be incorporated into Christ's body and share in His gifts and glories. We are, therefore, chosen in Him. The concept of being in Christ is also key to understanding predestination. Remember, this simply means that God, from before He started His project, had a sense of how it would end. Being chosen in Him is basically a summary of how the project works. But Paul says this was done before the foundation of the world. That is, before God began any of His work in building His creation for His glory, He had both a knowledge of how it would be done and what the end would be. Because he had this knowledge before, it is called foreknowledge, and because the knowledge includes both the course and the destination, we can say that we are predestined. To what are we predestined? Remember that being in Christ means having a share or participation in his identity. Right now, that is very out of sorts because there's not a Christian on earth who is very much like Christ himself. Even Paul, who had achieved some degree of Christ-likeness and could call people to follow him as he followed Christ, 1 Corinthians 11.1, 1, also said, I've not attained, I am not already perfected or completed, Philippians 3, verse 12. Yet that is the end goal. One of the greatest of all texts in the New Testament about predestination, and its greatness is in large part due to its clarity, is Romans 8.29. For those whom he, that is God the Father, foreknew, he also predestined to become conformed, that is, to be reshaped into the image of his Son, so that he, that is Christ, would be the firstborn among many brethren." Right now, we are participants in Christ and all spiritual blessings through Him, but our position in Christ means we have a future. We are destined to become like Christ in more than simply status and privileges, but in character and form and function. This is what it means to be the new humanity. Here in Ephesians, Paul says it this way, 
He chose us in him before the foundation of the world that we would be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us to adoption as sons through Jesus Christ to himself. That's Ephesians 1 verses 4 and 5. To be holy and blameless and to be adopted as sons, that is, to share in Christ's character and Christ's inheritance. To this end, God is moving us through our justification by pardon, our progressive sanctification through the Holy Spirit, and toward our glorification when our whole person, even our body, is transformed in the resurrection to be like him in all things. As we contemplate these things, we must not miss how these verses are saturated with the message of God's grace. That God has not done these things because of our worthiness or because he felt obliged to from our own conduct, but because of his kindness and love and goodness. What he has given Christ, Christ earned. What he has given us in Christ, he freely bestowed, says Ephesians 1.6. This is vital because sometimes there is an unnecessary and inappropriate conflation in the minds of people concerning conditions and merit. Some would say that the only way a gift is truly a gift and truly free is if it has no conditions for its reception and enjoyment. This is not Paul's position, however. Paul sees no conflict between salvation being by grace and not of yourselves but the gift of God and also being through faith or faithfulness, as he says in Ephesians 2, 8 and 9. God has chosen Christ and chosen to invite the old humanity into Christ's corporate identity to become in him a new humanity. However, those in the old humanity must choose themselves whether or not they will accept Christ and be a part of that identity. Now, there are many for whom this is a contradiction. If God is sovereign, they say, then his choices are absolute and exclusive, and there can be no choosing on the part of anyone else. If there is anyone for whom Christ died who does not come to benefit from his death— then, for certain Christians, that would somehow mean that God is not truly sovereign. Yet the sovereignty of God in Scripture is not his micromanagement of creation, but his exalted position which allows him to make whatever choices he will. He could have micromanaged creation if he had chosen to do so, but the Bible indicates that he did not choose to do that. Instead, he chose an arrangement which allowed human beings to either accept or reject his intentions for them. Listen to the oracle of God in Isaiah chapter 5, verses 1 through 7. Let me sing now for my well-beloved a song of my beloved concerning his vineyard. My well-beloved had a vineyard on a fertile hill. He dug it all around, removed its stones, and planted it with the choicest vine. And he built a tower in the middle of it, and also hewed out a wine vat in it. Then he expected it to produce good grapes, but it produced only worthless ones. And now, O inhabitants of Jerusalem and men of Judah, judge between me and my vineyard. What more was there to do for my vineyard that I have not done in it? 
why, when I expected it to produce good grapes, did it produce worthless ones? So now let me tell you what I'm going to do to my vineyard. I will remove its hedge, and it will be consumed. I will break down its wall, and it will become trampled ground. I will lay it waste. It will not be pruned or hoed, but briars and thorns will come up. I will also charge the clouds to rain no rain on it, for the vineyard of the Lord of hosts is the house of Israel and the men of Judah his delightful plant. Thus he looked for justice, but behold, bloodshed, for righteousness, but behold, a cry of distress. No one would deny that God sovereignly chose Israel and had a special intention for what Israel was to accomplish and that he worked toward those ends. But he was disappointed. He expected it to produce good grapes, but it produced only worthless ones. Whose fault was this failure? Was it somehow God's mysterious will that this would happen? What does God say? God asks the question, what more was there to do for my vineyard that I have not done in it? The failure was not on the part of God, but on the part of Israel. And evidently, God chose an arrangement which allowed for failure or success based on their response to his work. Remember when Jesus stood looking over Jerusalem during the final week of his life, and he said, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, who kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to her. How often I wanted to gather your children together the way a hen gathers her chicks under her wings, and you were unwilling. God is sovereign, and his sovereignty is manifest in the choices he makes. But when he chooses an arrangement which requires a human response, then we have a choice as well. Yet, really, as important as it is to understand those things, this is not Paul's emphasis in Ephesians 1. Paul's message here is one of glorious encouragement. Does it appear that things are falling apart? Does it seem that God's plan is failing? Does it look like the powers of this world are overcoming Christ? Impossible. Because God, who is sovereign, has made a choice. He has chosen Christ. And Christ has already accomplished all that was necessary. So all who are in Christ are chosen and predestined to glory. The end is marked out, and it has been from before the foundation of the world. The enemy is already defeated, and whatever seems to be contrary to that, do not dismay. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ, just as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we would be holy and blameless before him. Blessed be the Father, who in his magnificence knows the end from the beginning and has made all the right choices to bring things where he wills them to be, to the praise of his glory. The kingdom is spreading, oh, tell ye the story, God's banner exalted shall be. 
The earth shall be full of his knowledge and glory as waters that cover the sea.